What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is a fascinating piece. It's by uh, Daniel Jocelyn uh, Siamantoski over at theconversation.com. And it's titled, Why Good Friday Was Dangerous for Jews in the Middle Ages and How That Changed. And he talks about, from the 4th century, the, the Catholic way of celebrating Good Friday was to traditionally read from the Gospel of John's account of Jesus' crucifixion, which specifically blames the Jews for basically the crucifixion of Jesus. And during the medieval Good Friday service, Christians prayed for the perfidious Jews, the perfidious, you know, deceitful, that God, quote, might remove the veil from their hearts so they would know Jesus Christ. And then they also had a chant called, uh, known as the Reproaches, which was sung in this piece. It was the voice of God accusing the Jews, Jewish people of faithlessness in rejecting Jesus and crucifying him. So very often after these services on Good Friday, and again, medieval times and Catholic times, after the services, people would leave the Catholic church and go out and throw stones at the homes of Jews. This didn't change really in a big way until after World War II. After the Holocaust, you know, the, the, a lot of Christian churches realized that their own teachings and practices were contributing to that genocide of the Jews in Germany and Poland and, and Holland and, and whatnot. And so the Second Vatican Council in 1965 set a new direction. Uh, they also issued a decree around that time called Nostre Atate, which declared that Jews should not be held responsible for the death of Jesus and, quote, decries hatred, persecution, displays of anti-Semitism directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. Now, some churches still use the reproaches in their services, some Catholic churches, but they only do it in Latin among Roman Catholics. Uh, it is still permitted, but only in Latin. So it's an interesting little bit of history there. My op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is about well, it asked the question, actually, the headline asked the question, how do we break the cycle of political violence? You know, we, we saw, and, and I suppose you could argue that wanting to kill black people specifically, formerly enslaved, or the descendants of formerly enslaved people, you could argue that it was a form of political violence because race relationships in the United States are subject to law and laws are created through the political process. 
and what we have done now is we have said, we have created these hate laws, right, or anti-hate laws. And this really started in 1965 with the Civil Rights Act that made it a crime to deprive people of housing and things and accommodations, you know, hotel rooms, based on their race. But that really didn't stop anything. And so Congress passed the Civil Rights Act that defined any hate crime as anything that, quote, willingly injures, intimidates, or interferes with another person or attempts to do so by force because of that person's race, color, religion, or national origin. Then in 96, we added church protections to that. And in 2009, the Matthew Shepard Hate Crimes Act expanded this to include hate crimes being federal crimes that you could charge people for hate crimes because of, quote, actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, or gender. So we've got all these categories where the federal government can lay a hate crime charge on top of a regular state charge. Or, which is more common, the federal government can bring in hate crimes when states refuse to prosecute. And we've seen this for years and years, particularly in the murder of African Americans by white people, attacking women because they wear burqas, attacking men because they appear Muslim, or, or both, you know, all, basically, you know, all genders. You know, we've seen this more and more. And I would say that it has had a positive effect. We've been dialing back on hate crime in the United States. But none of these laws protect you if the hate being directed against you is directed against you because of your politics. And frankly, I think that's a problem. I mean, here's this guy who shot up the subway in New York City. He's being charged with terrorism, which is weird because the definition of terrorism is using violence to achieve a political end. And we have no idea if this guy had any politics at all. You know, he, he was an immigrant who'd been in the United States for five years. He came from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He appears to be mentally ill. I mean, he was just shooting up a subway. Yes, it produced terror, but does that meet the definition of terrorism? And yet at the same time, you've got a thousand people who tried to end democracy in the United States. And in the process, six people died, including a police officer. And we're saying, well, that's not terrorism. That is not a hate crime. Because political violence is not you know, under this umbrella of hate crime. Well, political violence almost always, I mean, if you look at countries that have gone through this, Italy in the 1920s, Germany in the 1930s, India right now, as hate against Muslims is expanding with kind of the wink nod from the Modi regime, hate crimes growing in the United States. Politically motivated hate crimes now. There is no federal remedy for this. You know, whether it's running campaign buses off the road, yeah, there's other crimes that cover it, but running campaign buses off the road or putting bombs at the DNC and RNC or just your garden variety hate crimes, people vandalizing houses or shooting at houses or threatening people or, you know, fender bendering them because of bumper stickers. Now, let me be very clear. If Congress was to pass hate crime legislation that included politics, it would have to be very narrowly circumscribed. Because when hate crime starts, the goal of it, politically motivated hate crime, 
The goal of it typically is to change the politics of the nation. In other words, to change a nation from a democratic republic to, an to a neo-fascist oligarchy. Once that government is a neo-fascist oligarchy, they invariably pass their own political hate crime laws that basically outlaw all the other parties. And so I don't want to be laying the foundation for that. That's a very real danger. Yet at the same time, it seems that there should be some protection against this cycle of political violence that is starting now in the United States in ways that are eerily reminiscent of how it started in Italy in the 20s and Germany in the 30s and India right now and Russia in the 90s because they do invariably lead to the end of democracy. So, you know, we need to nip this in the bud and I'm not sure exactly how to do it. I do think that there should be a robust debate about this in Congress, a serious discussion of it of all sides of it, something that would protect everybody who is, you know, the victim of political hate crimes, and start calling out and identifying political hate. Maybe even labeling it in the media, I'm not sure. It's like, again, these are things that could be badly abused. And yet at the same time, how do we break the cycle of political violence? We are in the early stages of a transition from a democratic republic into full-blown fascism in the United States. The Republican Party pulling out of the uh, debates is another symptom of it. We have a political party that is increasingly devoted exclusively to fascist ideology. How do we deal with that? What do we do about that? Back in 1980, you'll recall, during the Reagan campaign for president, the Republican Party and, and you know one of the co-founders of the Heritage Foundation announced basically the war on voting, um, saying that, uh, you know, uh, we don't want everybody to vote. Our leverage in the elections, quite frank, candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Uh, the efforts have been directed largely towards minority groups. You, you saw William Rehnquist back in, in, the, in the 1960s in Arizona. In fact, it kind of pioneered this stuff uh, with Operation Eagle Eye, where he would stand outside polling places that were largely Hispanic or Native American and, and, and try to intimidate them. This, is, this made him a big man in the Republican Party and ultimately got him onto the Supreme Court. So what is the state of black America right now? How is this war against voting and, 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 and broadly against minorities right across the board going in the United States? With us right now, Mark H. Boreal. He is the president and CEO of the National Urban League, the former mayor of New Orleans from 1994 to 2002. And uh, uh, President Boreal, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, today. thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your press release here talking about Jerry gerrymandering and voter suppression, misinformation, voter inti intimidation. Let's just go down the list. Um, you know, um, first, broadly speaking, what is the state of black America today, in your opinion? Well, black America's right to vote is under siege. There is a plot, you know it, and you've reported on it to destroy democracy. For black Americans, it, it means that, and this is a, an important data point, that since the January 6th insurrection have been 400 bills introduced across the United States to make it more difficult for people to vote, targeted at black people. So voter suppression, gerrymandering, uh, voter intimidation, misinformation are the tactics of this 
pernicious campaign, which really elevated after the election of Barack Obama, the Citizens United case, the challenge to the Voting Rights Act through a number of cases to restrict its application and its reach. So for black Americans now, the most, most significant threat is the threat on the right to vote. The effort to reduce the power of black, I mean, this, this last- Well, so let, 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 me, let me try to draw this picture. So sure. number one, in the 2020 election, 70% of the people who voted, voted in a fashion other than going to a polling place and casting a vote in person. In states like Georgia, where you had an extraordinarily high black voter turnout, black voters put 300,000 ballots into drop boxes in the Atlanta metro area. What is the Georgia legislature doing? We're going to cut out vote by mail. We're going to limit drop boxes instead of from several hundred down to only 20 and only allow drop boxes to be available during working hours. So there's an effort to strip away, make it hard for people to vote. In Georgia, laws have been passed to require a very strict voter ID when large numbers of Georgians have no driver's license or state ID. Disproportionately, 56% of those who don't have a driver's license or state ID are African-American. Right. These are surgically, surgically inserted efforts to try to make it more difficult. And it affects more than black voters, but it's targeted at African-American voters. Then there's gerrymandering, drawing district lines, Several of these gerrymandered plans have been struck down by the courts. Others have been let go by the courts. Gerrymandered state legislative seats and congressional seats is another tactic of this plot to destroy democracy. Intimidation of voter officials, clerks, secretary of states, elections officials, one in six across the nation report being threatened politically or physically. These are the tactics. This is the strategy of those who would narrow the electorate, narrow the electorate so that they can retain power, an oligarch. This is what's important. The Roberts Court has been as hostile to voting rights of any court since courts before the 1950s. Yeah. We have been able to rely on the Supreme Court time and time again to protect voting rights. But the Roberts Courts, in a number of decisions, one in 06, uh, one in 2013, and two, one or two last term, have, have basically sanctioned these challenges to the Voting Rights Act. Right. It is outrageous that the Supreme Court would strike down civil rights laws. This is what the Supreme Court did in the 1800s. Yep. In the 1883 case that struck down the 1875 Civil Rights Act. In the 1896 case called Plessy that sanctioned, sanctioned segregation, yep. the Supreme Court, whose most important responsibility is to uphold and protect the Constitution, is acting like a political body and doing the bidding of voter suppressors. We've got to take this challenge on. Mark H. Morial, the president and CEO of the National Urban League, NUL.org, by the way, is the website. M-A-R-C-M-O-R-I-A-L is, is uh, Mark's Twitter handle and Nat Urban League uh, also on Twitter. Thank you so much for dropping by. We'll come back again. I look we forward to it. it. It's great talking Thank with you. you. Thank you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals 
from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Tom Harmon here with you. On the line with us is Greg Bluestein. He's a political reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the host of the Politically Georgia podcast and the author of a new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, welcome to the, uh, uh, the his Twitter handle, by the way, is Bluestein, B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N, uh, and uh, on Twitter and the website, AJC.com for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. What was the lay of the land in Georgia politics? I, I, I lived in Georgia for over a decade, but that was back in the 80s. What was the lay of the land in, in Georgia politics at the time that Stacey Abrams started becoming a serious force in Georgia politics? Yeah, well, the lay of the land for Democrats in Georgia was bleak. Um, Republicans had won every statewide office, had a commanding majority in the House delegation, both Senate seats, um, as well as a big majorities in the Georgia legislature, almost a supermajority in the Georgia legislature over the past uh, decade or so before uh, things started becoming more competitive. Uh, and it was Stacey Abrams uh, who started that process, that painstaking process of galvanizing, energizing, recruiting um, activists and volunteers and voters, showing them that, hey, there's a pathway forward for Democrats who want to stick to authentic messages not just by trying to run to be a Republican light candidates. So was the essence of what Stacey Abrams was doing um, bringing up the, the, the Democratic vote among people who were not registered to vote? In other words, just increasing participation, engaging the base? It was engaging the base in new ways, right? Um, you know, a lot of there was work to register voters who weren't registered, but many, many voters were already registered. They just felt disconnected, alienated disenchanted with the political process. Um, these were voters that rarely voted at all, and if they did, they voted in presidential elections, but skipped primaries and certainly skipped midterm elections. They felt like they didn't have a reason to vote. And Stacey Abrams and her allies, a, a network of activists and volunteers, um, realized that the only way to engage them, to, to get them you know, energized and mobilized to vote, 
was not by repeating the sort of Republican light messages that some other Democrats had. And that was the conventional wisdom at the time for Democrats to run away from national figures, um, to run away from gun control issues and criminal justice reform issues. And instead, you know, talk about broad based things like expanding Medicaid that were popular um, across party lines, but not lean into progressive issues. Stacey Abrams showed that there was a pathway uh, to, to energize those voters by leaning into typically liberal issues that the Democrats stayed away from. So for people who are not familiar with Stacey Abrams, um, uh, where would you place her politically and, and give us a little background on her? But where would you place her politically on the spectrum of, uh, you know, the Democratic Party spectrum of, let's say, from, you know, Bill Clinton neoliberalism to Bernie Sanders progressive populism? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, scale. Um, I'd probably put her seven-ish on in terms of liberal scale. She is she's very liberal, but she also has a a very deep, deeply rooted pragmatic streak. Mm -hmm. um, she is the former House Minority Leader of the state of Georgia, so she was the leading Democrat in the Georgia House for years. Um, she's a tax lawyer, uh, a businesswoman. Um, and, a, and a political activist um, who has made no bones about it. She is she's not shy about it at all. She wants to be president one day. Um, she wanted to be Joe Biden's running mate. She has she has higher aspirations than Georgia governor. But right now, Georgia governor has, has been her dream um, for as far back as when she was a, a, a teenager and has always aspired to do so. Um, but as I mentioned early on, especially in her legislative career, um, she had a pragmatic streak. She would work with Republicans. Um, to make legislation, in her view, better. Uh, when there is a big push to uh, cut the Hope Scholarship Award, which is a very popular scholarship, lottery-funded scholarship in Georgia that I went to school on. Uh, is if you kept the B average, you got tuition paid for. Um, when there was a push to cut that because of increasing demand and, and sort of flat lottery revenues, she worked with Republicans to uh, soften the blow and got a lot of pushback from Democrats that she wasn't more aggressive, that she would work across party lines. So even though she is this a progressive and liberal icon to many, um, she has shown that she can work across party lines in the past. We're talking with Greg Bluestein about his new book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, uh, Georgia has a large black population. Stacey Abrams is a black woman. To, to what extent are the lessons that we can learn from Stacey Abrams' candidacy and the campaign and, and the success of her efforts, to what extent are those transportable to a state that has a very small black population with perhaps a white progressive candidate? You know, it's a good question. I think overall it's the authenticity of the message. Um, the Democrats were trying to run as, uh, as candidates, as as candidates for issues that they didn't truly um, engage or believe in, in a sense, right? In, for example. In, in past years. Well, um, you know, Democrats stayed away from gun control. Um, Democrats were run as NRA Democrats, not because that's the way they viewed it, but it's because they thought that, and, and that was the conventional wisdom at the time, so I don't think their thinking was all that wrong, but they thought that in 2014 and 2012 and 2010, that if they embraced gun control, it would be uh, the, a campaign ender for their for The their NRA would take them down. The NRA would take them down in a state like Georgia, where NRA is still very powerful, where, where Second Amendment issues are still very uh, resonant among, among a, particularly conservative voters, but even some voters who are kind of more in the middle of the road. Um, so it took, it took sort of that 2018 campaign from Stacey Abrams to say, hey, 
you can you can campaign on legalizing marijuana, for instance, and that's another example. Um, you can campaign on bringing more economic equality by talking about tax cuts and tax credits for lower income Georgians, not just for middle income and higher income Georgians, but also for lower income Georgians. And then you can talk about gun control and it wouldn't be a campaign doomer right off the bat. How does abortion play in all this? You know, abortion is another one of those issues that Democrats in Georgia tiptoed, again, tiptoed around probably more like two decades ago than, than more recently. Um, but Stacey Abrams and other Democratic candidates, especially in the last four or five years, have put that at the center of their, of their campaign arguments. Brian Kemp, one of the first major legislative uh, acts that he did was sign into law one of the most sweeping, far-reaching far abortion restrictions uh, in the nation in Georgia in 2019. It immediately got, got blocked in the, in the federal court system. Um, but even by signing that bill that he calls the heartbeat law into, into law, um, sent a message to Democrats, too, that, hey, this is not some squishy conservative, a moderate. This is not some middle-of-the-road Republican. He is going to fulfill his campaign promises because he ran very— just as Stacey Abrams embraced the left, um, Brian Kemp didn't necessarily move to the middle in 2018 either. He continued to embrace the right. Yeah. Do we, you have this whole— um uh, hysteria, this uh, this moral panic that's going on right now around uh, schools and, and LGBTQ uh, people and issues, and uh, you know the the, the main uh, group that they're that the Republicans are beating up on are trans people. But you know now they're going. I mean, they're just they, they've gone into weird land. Um, how is that playing out in Georgia? Yeah, in a major way. I mean, culture wars have entered the classrooms in Georgia. And I'm glad you mentioned transgender legislation because that was the one piece of Governor Kemp's legislative agenda that I didn't think would necessarily make it across the finish line. Um, our, our legislative session just ended last week. And in the final minutes of the legislative session, lawmakers passed a, a measure that would eventually, ultimately would let high school officials block transgender students from competing in high school sports. So Georgia's going to, in some form or fashion, join the ranks of those other states that have taken that step. But it wasn't just that. There was legislation that would uh, ban or seek to control how teachers talk about race and gender in the classroom. It would allow more parents say in what books should be allowed to be taught in, in, in Georgia public schools and which shouldn't. And, um, and other legislation that even sought to control how higher education, how professors taught about critical race theory and, and others. That, that legislation didn't pass that, that last one I mentioned, but just the very fact that it was being uh, sponsored or being talked about was seen um, to Democrats as a threat. Yeah, it's an amazing story. The book is called Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. The author, Greg Bluestein, Bluestein, B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N is his Twitter handle. Uh, he's a reporter with the Atlanta Constitution Journal and the host of the Politically Georgia podcast. Greg, thanks a lot for dropping by. Great, great talking with you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's it going to take for Americans to see that Republicans are utterly cynical about voter fraud? We're getting case after case after case of Republican. There was just two, two guys down in the uh, the villages down in Florida, this this uh, the largest retirement community in the United States, who got busted for voting twice for Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's like every week that goes by, there's a new story about a Republican who has committed voter fraud. It's never Democrats, right? The two Democrats that they caught, two black women that they caught and they charged with voter fraud literally arresting them, hitting, you know, high bail, facing years in prison. And in both cases, they actually hadn't voted. They had just simply tried to register to vote or tried to vote. And, and you know, the, the person at the election place said, well, here's a provisional ballot and we'll check it out. And boom, they're, they're in jail. I mean, they, they were upfront about the fact that they were both, you know, felons who were out of jail. And just didn't know, you know, which it was. But, you know, we've got all these Republicans who I think, you know, basically Trump and the GOP have just basically promoted this. Hey, you know, anybody can vote as many times as they want in America. This is the Democrats' new scheme, so you should do it too, is essentially what they seem to be saying. And now you've got the guy who was number two to the president or his, you know, his chief of staff, the guy who ran the White House for the president. Mark Meadows, the former head of the Tea Party caucus, I think they call it the Free Freedom Caucus now, in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, registered to vote at a trailer in the woods in North Carolina. He was representing North Carolina in the U.S. House of Representatives. And he never lived there. It was like a trailer that, you know, that he was using for storing old papers and stuff. And he's registered to vote there when he lives in Virginia, and he's been voting in Virginia. But he's still registered to vote in North Carolina. Claire McCaskill, the former Democratic senator from Missouri, was on MSNBC yesterday, and she said, put him in jail. Prosecute him and put him in jail. The attorney general for North Carolina, North Carolina is one of those states that, you know, would be blue if it weren't for gerrymandering, right? The, the, the governor, the secretary of state, I, I believe, uh, the attorney general are all Democrats. And the Democratic attorney general, Josh Stein, opened this uh, probe into Mark Meadows about a month ago. And guess what? 
the guy is registered to vote in a trailer that he's never lived in, never even stepped foot in, as far as anybody can tell, much less lived in it. I'm seeing a level of cynicism in the GOP. And among their, their promoters in the media, that I, I, I frankly don't recall having seen before in America. I've been around a long time. And, you know, I remember cynical times in this country. I remember, you know, cynicism around the war in Vietnam. I remember cynicism around 9-11 and, and Bush's, you know, uh, rush to war with Iraq and lying us into that war in Iraq. You know, I, I recall these things. But there was never a, a call to action attached to them that would ultimately lead to violence. I mean, five people died on January 6th, let's not forget. Or, you know, seven or eight people died as a result of January 6th. Several of them died in the days immediately following, including a police officer. That would lead to that violence, that would lead to violence you know, the, the Kyle Rittenhouse kind of violence. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene and others in the, on the hard right pushing this whole, you know, Democrats are pedophiles who want to drink the blood of children in satanic rituals. You know, the, the, the 2022 version of the blood libel from uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Only now it's being, it's a little more ecumenical. It's, it's not just being directed against Jews. It's being directed against Democrats broadly. And what, did, what happened when that blood libel was directed against Jews? There was a Holocaust and, and Jews were killed. I mean, this is, this is troubling stuff. That they're willing to give people a pass on criminal activity, like trying to bring down the government, at the same time that they're trying to criminalize people who are just, you know, going about their lives and supporting the wrong political party. And, and Mark Meadows certainly was a cheerleader for that and continues to be, and it's just, it just, it troubles me. How different do you think your life would be if you had a, a Biden-Harris bumper sticker on your car, for example? Tammy in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Hey, Tammy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was just calling to tell you why I don't have my Biden-Harris signs on my car anymore because I've had car windows smashed out. I've had roofing nails thrown down my driveway across my sidewalk. Wasn't one roofing nail before or after where the sidewalk begins or ends. Wow. So it's been pretty uh, eye-opening. I've had people, I live at a four-way stop that's in a small college town. It's fairly well traveled, and I've had people pull up while I'm doing my dishes and make their fingers like a gun and go pew, 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 mimic shooting me. Huh. You've been threatened. Yeah, they're. Essentially. Oh, yeah, they're very. Yeah, because see, in my windows, I have up, you know, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. You know, love is love. In this house, this is what we believe. So, you know, whether I have a political sign up or not, you kind of know that I follow a certain Jesus and uh, not theirs. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's... And I'm in the middle of a really, really red area. So, yeah, I am scared. That's and amazing. I've never, in 50 years, been scared as I am today. 
and you, these people. You know, most of my life I've seen bumper stickers, political bumper stickers on cars for all parties. I haven't seen a Biden-Harris, uh, I mean, you know, it's been a year and a half since the election, but I don't think I've ever seen a Biden-Harris bumper sticker. Um, I think yeah, a lot of people afraid. are just as frightened as you are, you know, and, and yeah. probably many of them have been threatened. Yeah, it's, after January 6th, we saw what they're capable of. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and on an ongoing basis, it's just amazing. Tammy, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you. It's, it's got to be a tough one. Fred in Ultimate Springs, Florida. Hey, Fred. I kept getting my Biden signs taken. What I did was, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't like the Trumpers that, that take them, but I don't want to hurt them. So what I use, I'm a retired mechanic. We had this thing called anti-seize grease. It's like a, you can you can buy it at almost any parts store, and it, you put it on different various things. And like I like to use it on, on the end of spark plugs. You put it in there so the spark plugs don't get stuck in there, cylinder heads when you're trying to replace. So it's them. like a but really anyway, really persistent grease. Correct, and you get that stuff on your hands. It doesn't hurt you, but it doesn't want to come off. Doesn't want to wash off. People put it and they wipe their on their pants, and it makes a mess in their or on their shirts or on a paper towel, whatever. It's uh, Fred, you, uh, you have the you heart know. of a vandal. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, so you just put you. the uh, anti-seize grease on the, uh, what, on the, on the, on the signs Bottom. post? On the, yeah, yeah, where somebody no, no, can grab the, it. If you, if you have, you know, as I said, when you take a sign like the signs, you grab them underneath there, okay, mm -hmm. and you pull them up. And, and uh, that's why I put them, the, put a bead right on that. And then, and it doesn't wash off real easy, too. Right. So, in other words, if you have out there in the rain, it, it's all stay they, on there. Did they stop stealing your signs as a result of this? Well, I had numerous signs because I had all the other people that were running for office, all the other Democrats here. Mm -hmm. They didn't touch them. They got the Biden one. The second one, though, I actually tied up in my tree. And, and so it was a little harder for him to get that one. Uh, but uh, uh, then I had some one of my ex-co-workers threaten to come out and shoot it because he's a Trumpster. And I said, well, that's typical Trumpster. They want to come shooting people. And I live in, you know, in the city, so it's yeah. not like we're out in the rural area. Well, Fred, yeah. thank you, yeah. <laughs> I think. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Mike in Lutzen, Minnesota. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? The attacks that progressive or Democrats face on social media. When I moved up here, I started checking out the local congressman's uh, Facebook page. He's a Republican, and I'll make comments on there, mainly on fact-checking and things like that. But I had one, uh, two quick per uh, personal experiences I'll share. I had one poster on there that I disagree with that I got in some debates with. Actually looked me up on Google Maps and posted where I live. I don't have any personal information on my Facebook page, no, not a hometown or anything. Wow. And then I recently had one, and this is really disturbing, did a, an internet search for my name, found a psychologist that's living in Minneapolis who was accused of sexually abusing uh, patients and posted that constantly on this congressman's Facebook page. And I've counted now, it's been over 200 times he posted that on there. And then everybody jumps on about this guy shouldn't should be arrested. He should be in jail. What, he shouldn't suggesting be there. that you're that guy? You mean that I'm this person and wanting me to defend myself? That because you have the same name. It's not me. That's bizarre. And on a congressman's Facebook page, no less. Yeah, I'm seeing. I you know I don't know Mike if you're old enough to remember the '80s, but I remember the McMartin preschool hysteria. 
during the Reagan years. And I, it seems like, you know, they're trying to whip that up all over again. You know, just, a, a you know, the satanic ritual abuse, uh, you know, kind of stuff. And it, it's like I said earlier, this is this is the protocols of the elders of Zion strategy all over again. And now recently he's saying that he's calling my neighbors to, to find out about me. Holy cow. All because you were challenging your Republican congressman on Facebook, challenging his political positions. He'll do a posting, and a lot of it's I'll, I'll fact check, and I'll, I'll put links on there to correct it. Right. And it immediately turns personal. It can't just be a debate about the issues. Right. It always turns to you're a communist and all the other vile comments that, that follow it. Yeah. Mike, thanks for sharing yep. that. I, I wish okay, you well. Thank Good you. luck. <laughs> I mean, this also argues for you know a change in in uh, Section 230, I think it is, or 320, 230 of the Telecommunications Act. Uh, Warren in Seattle. Hey, Warren, what's on your mind today? Hey. I've been watching the the January 6 investigation. I never see any mention of the fact that they killed the policeman. Well, he died the day after. But, I know, but, but they know, stopped. If, if that had happened on, on uh, you know, if the tables were turned, I guarantee you that that would be the, what they would lead with every single time. Yeah. These people killed a cop. Yeah, now here in Seattle, if a cop dies, it's, it's a national holiday. Right. I mean, I mean, they stop everything. It's crazy. And the fact that they killed a cop should be one of the first things they talk about. You would think. You would think, particularly because they're all, you know, all right-wing law and order. Yes, indeed. Uh, but, you, you know, you would think that our media would pay more attention to it, too. I'm with you. I think it's, it's bizarre the way that the media has basically downplayed the violence of January 6th. And Democrats, frankly, are kind of, yes. you know, letting it slide, too, which is uh, problematic, shall we say. Russell in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Russell, you're on the air. What's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I read an article recently that I thought was interesting. They said the median IQ in America is 100. That means, you know, half above, half below. Right. And then they also stated that uh, 85 was considered a moron, which I thought was kind of a weird term. But anyway, the hallmark of the 100 and below is that they're not able to think sequentially very well. They don't see, you know, this causes that, causes that, causes that. And it, it made me understand that maybe this is what we've got going here. Half of our country is on the, you know, slogan, you know, freedom, and not really understanding what freedom means. They just say freedom, you know, and and yeah, I think it, it, I think there there is probably an element of that, Russ. Remember, Donald Trump said we love the uneducated. Exactly, and <laughs> so I'm in Hendersonville, which is a very uh, red area, and uh, I've called you before about this, but I've got all sorts of bumper stickers. And my newest one that I made up is ignorance trumps stupid. And I use apostrophe on the Trumps. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, ignorance Trump is stupid. And mm -hmm. then the other one is um, a patriot trumps a traitor with the same apostrophe. Wow. And I actually had a guy come up to me and, you know, he was all angry about it and everything. And, and um, he, he didn't get the apostrophe part of it. I, I, you know, we argued, and he didn't mm -hmm. even get, you know, it's like, no, that means he's stupid. And if you follow him, that means you're not very smart as well. You have to fight these people. I mean, I hate to say it, but you have to get in their face. And that's the problem with a lot of um, liberal people. Well, people, some people can't, but I'm a big guy, so I can. And that's the only way we can do it is to tell them, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know, don't um, let them believe that what they think is what everyone thinks. Yeah. Okay. Good story, Russell. Thank you very much for uh, that. 
Sonny Bird, posting over on dailycoast.com, wrote this piece called As God is My Witness, and uh, it's uh, really an extraordinary read. Sonny Bird apparently works in a hospital and doesn't say if this person is a, uh, a minister or a nurse. I, from the way it reads, I would assume probably, you know, there as spiritual help, but not sure. This is just an excerpt from the diary. As I said, you can read it at dailycoast.com. It's titled, As God is My Witness. And I'm quoting, this is, an, I'm entirely quoting here. One of the last people I sat with was one of those who had drunk every flavor of GQP Kool-Aid, worshiped the orange menace, and somehow equated Ivanka and Melania as Republican terrestrial agents that were planted with Trump so he could do his godly duty and save the entire planet and the white human race because other races are unworthy of walking on God's planet. Frankly, my skin crawled, and I wanted to leave the room and never go back, but that's not why I'm there. He ranted about the Dems, the traitor Dems, and libs that were destroying the planet. One of the last things he said to me was, quote, as God Trump is my witness, my soul will be avenged for the wrongs done to all of us by the evil demons of hell, the libs and the Dems, end quote. And I'm still quoting from uh, Sonny Bird's diary. He was actually waving his fist in the air, was red-faced and crying. I tried to calm him, but he started coughing and then passed away. He died. He, he was in end-stage COVID. Okay, this is my editorial comment. So back to, the, back to the diary. A nurse had stopped in the hallway as he started his rant, witnessing this final moment. She hollered to the nurse nearby and hurried to him. I stood in the corner out of their way so I could make my final statement after he was declared deceased. The nurse looked at me after they both declared him deceased and asked if this was normal. No, no, it wasn't. His final words were unhinged and hateful. No thoughts of love for his family or friends or happy memories, just cruelty and hate. Now, we're not born this way. You know, this isn't the natural, Thomas Hobbes is wrong. This is not the natural state of humanity. The natural state of, 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 of humans is to be alive and loving and caring and considerate. You know, what the Russians have, have done in, in the suburbs of Kiev, for example, in Bucha and the, and the other little towns around there, going through and literally raping, murdering. Um, this is not normal. And, and screaming as you're dying about your political enemies is not normal. People have to be taught to hate. There's all kinds of subtle ways that society does it. You know, we have this whole structure that we generally refer to as white privilege that, you know, you could say is a piece of that. But then there's this media ecosystem that is being cheered on by a right-wing billionaire infrastructure and ecosystem that in order to prevent Americans from having the same kind of health care that, you know, people enjoy all over the world, in advanced democracies all around the world, to, to prevent people from having free education, because these things would raise the taxes on rich people. In order to prevent you know, pollution control and the electrification of America, because these people make their money selling fossil fuels, they are assisting, supporting, cooperating with, collaborating with, whatever you want to call it, these right-wing outlets that are teaching people to be hateful and fearful.
And how is that a good thing? This is not, I mean, you know, the, when, when the, the Constitution was written, there was a, a, a discussion about the free press, and we almost lost that. The free press is written into the First Amendment, but in 1780, 1798, when John Adams was a one-term president, right in the middle of his presidency, John Adams got pissed off at the newspapers for attacking him, and he passed the Alien Sedition Law. It so offended Jefferson that for the next two years, Jefferson was vice president. He refused to come talk with John Adams. He, he never again met him physically until the day they both died. And the Alien and Sedition Act allowed the President of the United States to shut down newspapers and put their publishers in jail. And he shut down 17 newspapers and jailed over 20 newspaper editors, including Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, because Bach had written an editorial saying that Adams was old, toothless, querulous, and balding. So we want a free press. We don't want to go back to John Adams. But is this what what the founders had in mind? Somehow I don't think so. Now I'm not calling for limits on the press, but I am saying that I think the rest of the press, what we now refer to as the corporate media, has some kind of an obligation to point out how toxic some of the press within the country have become. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. What's it going to take to wake people up from all that, from peddling hate and fear? What's it going to take? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, uh, you know, what's it going to take Americans, I guess, basically, to figure out that racism is, should be a badge of shame, not a badge of honor? Andrew Clyde is a, a congressman from Georgia, and uh, he, he got in the middle of this thing. There's... There is a, a, a federal judge, his name is uh, Joseph W. Hatchett, he's, he's passed away now. He was the first black man to serve on the Florida Supreme Court. That bill was sponsored by both of Florida's Republican senators. It was backed by all 27 of Florida's House, uh, members of the House of Representatives, Republicans and Democrats. It was a, you know, a simple piece of legislation that basically would name a federal courthouse. Now, these things require two-thirds in the Senate and in the House and Senate to pass. And Andrew Clyde got all bent out of shape about this guy because apparently back in 1999, he ruled in a case where uh, the, the, a public school had a policy of requiring students to participate in, in prayers at graduation ceremonies. And a parent sued and said, no, this is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has ruled that you can't force children to participate in public prayers. By the way, that issue is coming back before the Supreme Court. But nonetheless, this was 1999. And this judge said, no, the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. You can't force children to participate in public school prayers. And so Representative Andrew Clyde started this 
you know, whisper campaign in the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives that uh, we can't name this federal courthouse after this, the first black judge in the history of Florida because he stood up for the Constitution. I mean, it's just insane. He said, quote, he voted against student-led school prayer in Duval County in 1999. I don't agree with that. That's it. I just let the Republicans know that information on the House floor. I have no idea if they knew it or not. Well, once they learned that, they decided, well, to hell with this judge or his memory. I mean, his family was all excited. There was, you know, civil rights groups. It was just, it was a big deal. Andrew Clyde. Andrew Clyde, by the way, the guy who, who, who took this down, he also voted against giving the Congressional Gold Medal to the Capitol Police who were there on January 6th. He voted against that. He voted against certifying Joe Biden as President of the United States. He voted against the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. You starting to get a sense of who this guy is? He voted against recognizing Juneteenth as a holiday. And, you know, odds are he'll get reelected. Racism does not apparently hurt you if you are an elected official in a red state or a red county, which, which makes the point that I keep trying to make here, which is that racism isn't a bug in the GOP. It's a feature. It's at the core of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is basically all about white privilege, white privilege and white power. And they've got basically nothing else. I mean, you know, when they actually talk about policies that they want to see happen, keeping in mind that the GOP basically, you know, their, their main purpose in life is to serve the interests of very wealthy people. So you get, you know, Senator Scott from Florida coming along and saying, well, here's the 11-point plan for the GOP. He's in charge of getting senators, Republican senators, reelected, right? He's the chairman of that, that group that raises money to, so here's his 11 point plan that we should all run on. Point number one, 60% of Americans make so little money that they don't pay federal income taxes. They do pay, you know, social security and FICA taxes and things, but let's start hitting them with a tax. Let's raise taxes on hundred million Americans and let's sunset social security and Medicare after five years. It's not going over real well with the voters, even the Republicans. So Rick Scott is kind of trying to downplay it now, you know, and the Republicans are not talking about it. So even when they come out and talk about what their actual policies are, people are like, no, I don't really want that. So what are they left with? Oh, yeah, racism. It works. It works with a lot of white people. Don't ever underestimate it. And welcome back. 51 minutes past the hour. Uh, Rachel in Chicago. Hey, Rachel, what's up? Re-migration. I think that's a way that we can take back some of these red states. You know, I've been in Chicago most of my life, but I'm not afraid to move to North Dakota, South Dakota. Yeah. We, you know, we need to come out of these big metropolitan cities, L.A., New York. Well, and it's a lot cheaper to live in some of these red states, too. Absolutely. There are so many benefits. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, reoccupy the country. That's a good one. Rachel, thank you. Yeah, thank you, sir. Cheryl in Clarksville, Georgia. Hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind today? 
this is a very interesting topic, Tom. It's nice to talk with you. I love your show. I live in Andrew Clyde's district. Unfortunately, I used to live in Atlanta, but my husband wanted me to move up here. It's where he grew up, and then he died, so I'm a widow. I have been attacked by my neighbors, 2018, I believe it was, and I don't even have signs. Mm. Um, I don't... um, I'm not on social media. I'm not even on the Internet right now. When my computer was stolen, I didn't replace it, so I'm off the grid. So I don't even know what happened, but one neighbor, actually two, stalked me, and my neighbor on the other side sick their dogs on me. All I can uh, surmise is that I have a lot of misdirected mail. That never happened when I lived in Atlanta, but this was when Stacey Abrams was running, and I was getting a lot of flyers about her, and I also get mail like from Planned Parenthood. I also found out that I live right in the middle of Aryan Nations. Oh my. So this is a very scary place to live, and I've thought about moving, but I don't really know where to go. It's kind of a scary place to be. And Andrew and Clyde, also, your U.S. representative, your member of Congress, is the guy who yeah. made sure that post office was not named in Florida, in fact, this has nothing yeah, to do and, with Georgia. and I hear that the guy who sponsored that doesn't even, they ask him what happened, and he says, I really don't know. Yeah. He well, didn't know. He was whipped against his own bill yep, by this guy. Yep, to, to, uh, to, Andrew to, Clyde, to, I knew Andrew Clyde would win because his campaign signs had uh, an automatic weapon on them. It just had his name and a picture of a gun. Andrew Clyde is a gun store owner. Oh. And so he owns at least two gun stores, and uh, he loved Donald Trump because Donald Trump got him out of trouble with the IRS. He had uh, forfeit uh, assets, forfeiture, seizure, whatever you call it. Uh I don't know the details, but Donald Trump helped get him out of trouble when he was in power uh, with IRS. So something uh, like that, I don't understand. But and also, you talked about John Birch Society yesterday, I believe, mm-hmm. and that is all in power in this county now. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a very elaborate fly or uh, pamphlet put in our local paper and endorsed by our sheriff. And very many of our local businesses, including a bank, uh, several restaurants. This was all promoting even, the JBS, the John Birch Society? Yes, and it's called Support Your Local Police Committee, and they're very much against Homeland Security, which I'm like you. I don't like the name of the homeland. I don't Mm -hmm. like that terminology, but they want you to support the local police instead of Homeland Security, which made me think of your Sheriff Mack. But it uh, even has Asian restaurant. Mexican restaurant, which I and a, a restaurant that I know is owned by gay men, so I don't understand if they know what this. Because my dad was also a person. You talk about your dad, although he, my dad was actually one of the ones that your dad warned you against. He was uh, uh, George Wallace, <laughs> one of the John Birch Society and, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get and it, sure. so uh, this is very, and this was in my local paper, and in, as I said, endorsed by our sheriff who I don't know if you guys remember uh, Baby Boo Boo. My my sheriff is the one who sponsored the flashbang grenade that blew off the face of Baby Boo Boo. Oh, my. And so this is where I live. And also, it turns out, I I think I told you, I I have Aryan Nations here. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. Charles, amazing, an amazing, absolutely amazing story. Thanks for sharing it with us. They're from Georgia. Glenn in Olivet, Michigan. Hey, Glenn, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I want to elaborate just a little bit more on that uh, previous caller about the uh, never sees on the signs. 
just oh, curious, the never uh, sees grease. Yeah, somebody tweeted a, can, a yeah. picture of a can of that just a little bit ago. Yeah. A lot of your viewers might not know is it actually has a graphite base to it. So once they grab that sign, throw it in the back of their pickup, it's going to get on their steering wheel. They wipe their face, it's going to get on their face. And like he said, it does not wash off. It has to wear off. Now, for the people that want to do this to their signs, don't put any on the very corners of your sign. That way, when you're mowing your lawn, you can gently pick it up and take your palms of your hand and push it back in. Right. We, we've done this for years. <laughs> really? This is the, yeah. the anti-sign theft or anti-sign vandalism strategy is to use yeah. never sees grease. Yeah, like I say, it's graphite based. It doesn't wash off. It used to be an old uh, trick. Used to, people used to, on job sites, they'd put it in hard hats and welding hoods on their forehead. Uh-huh. And then they'd wear a silver band for about a week. Right, until it wears <laughs> off. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Glenn, thanks for the uh, thanks for the, the, the further information. I appreciate it. Mark in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, just calling to tell you about the best Trump bumper sticker I've ever seen. Anti-Trump bumper sticker. Okay. I was in a red area in Michigan, and I pulled up behind a huge pickup truck, and it had a picture of Trump. So I thought, ah, typical Trumper here. The picture was Trump uh, picking his nose. And over to the left of that, or to the right of that, in big letters, it said, does this ass make my truck look big? <laughs> and I, I thought it was the most creative bumper sticker I'd ever seen. So uh, I it's, love not, it. it's not only Trumpers that drive big trucks in Michigan. Yeah, okay. Well, Mark, you win the prize. <laughs> Thank okay. you very love much. That was a good one. Show. Thank you, Tom. That's okay. a great one. Miguel in Frederick, Maryland. Hey, Miguel, what's up? Hey, so what I was going to say about that bill in Tennessee, which I really don't, I, I don't go to Tennessee, but mm. it's it's history repeating itself. They passed a bunch of laws after, after when well, you talking about 1876 and all the rest, that mm-hmm. stopped blacks from moving, going north. Right. Any black that was seen on the highway and the road, they could be arrested, put in jail, they'll put their trial date off, and in the meantime, they were leased out to local farmers. Yeah, the, the sundown laws them, were all about that, if you're yes, familiar with that. Yeah, so they're just doing it again. So when they do this, they're not going to mess with the homeless white guy because he's a good guy. But the homeless black veteran, oh, he's a criminal. Yeah. So we're going to arrest him or maybe even shoot him. Yeah. So my, my point is that people laugh at this stuff, but they're just going back to the same damn book. Yeah. Thank you. And I love your show. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks a lot, Miguel. Uh, Mary in Seattle. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hi, Tom. I like what you're saying about the... Republicans are all about messing up Biden, shaming him, keeping him from doing anything. And I still believe this high prices in the oil, the foods and everything is a Republican effort to make everybody mad at the Democrats. I agree. Corporate profits are higher than they've ever been, Mary. All companies, stores are owned by oh, Republicans, I'm with you. and they give money to them. I'm with you. Mary, I got to run, but thank you. Yeah, spot on. I, I, I couldn't endorse what you say more strongly. I, you know, I, I think, it, frankly, it's, I don't know if it's a conspiracy, but it's, it's weird. The highest corporate profits in history, and everybody's jacking their prices up. Uh, there's something going on. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.